Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Jonathan Pincus, who is Visiting Professor of Economics at Adelaide University and an independent researcher and consultant. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Jonathan. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you very much for having me in your lovely home here in Glenelg in Adelaide, South Australia. It's wonderful to be here. And today we're going to talk about the economic legacy of Menzies and the Menzies era. And you, of course, co-authored a chapter in a book several years ago on this very topic with Henry Ergas, who we have also had on Afternoon Light. Yes, that's right. Henry and I wrote a chapter called The Wealth of the Nation, trying to survey what Menzies governments did economically. That's the post-Second World War Menzies government, of course. Yes, indeed. Indeed. He did, of course, serve as Prime Minister 1939 to 41, but his most significant period, 49 to 66. A huge period, as you know, of social, economic and political change and a period of economic prosperity. The long boom, it's called in economic history, (laughs) with in Australia very strong population growth to the economy, diversity of the economy, low unemployment, although Menzies almost lost his position because unemployment went to unacceptable levels of 2 or 3% (laughs) and low inflation except for right at the beginning with the Korean War. So it was extremely good economic times, especially in Australia. So, Jonathan, would you be able to paint a picture of what the situation was in the Australian economy in 1949 when Menzies gets in. He beats Ben Chifley, the Chifley Labor government, and Menzies is leading his new Liberal Party. He campaigned very heavily on an anti-socialist agenda and particularly against Chifley's policy of nationalising the banking system in Australia. But what was he facing in 1949 in terms of the Australian economy? Well, all of the economies still recovering into peacetime activity because the world had shortages of materials and manufactured capital goods in the late 1940s. The US was dominant economically and financially, and the United States supplied most of the world equipment and capital. So Australia was wanting to expand very rapidly in a world which was recovering mostly from the ravages of war. So we were competing for resources very strongly. And the basis of competition was a vision of what the economy was going to be like. And as you mentioned, there are two different visions. One was government-led vision, which is the Labor government, Labor Party's view. And there was the people-led vision where the government was facilitating some aspects of the growth of the economy, especially population, but allowing the private sector, including foreign capital, to help expand the economy. So the other aspect of it is that the Second World War reinforced the position in a, widely held in Australia that unless we got bigger, then we were unable to defend ourselves, unable to carry proper weight in international affairs. So the world was trying to recover from the war and we were trying to do something extra, which was develop 
Yes, because we very much saw ourselves as part of the British Empire at that time and Britain had a very tough war and was in a, a very difficult situation economically after the wars. But we had relied on Britain too as a trading partner, hadn't we? So where, if US was presenting such a strong picture post-World War II, where was Britain in this? Well, sadly, the relationship between Australia and Britain suffered a tremendous blow in Singapore. Yeah. And I think both sides of the political world in Australia, there is an understanding that Britain no longer could be the same partner economically as it used to be. And this showed up pretty quickly when Menzies was in power mm. to negotiate trade treaty with Japan, moving Australia's focus away from the Northern Hemisphere to our own hemisphere. So America was going to be more important than it used to be mm. and Britain less important than it used to be. Yeah. And both sides of politics realise that. For example, in terms of population growth, which both the Labour Party and, and the Liberal Party had similar views about increasing the population through migration, both sides recognised that Britain or the United Kingdom couldn't remain the almost source of those immigrants. So even in within the bounds of white Australia, which continued at that stage, the notion of Britain being the source of increased population was much played down. When Menzies comes in at the end of 1949 as Prime Minister, he offers a vision for the development of Australia, as you say, a bigger Australia, so we are more resilient to threats, but also able to develop into a a prosperous, developed nation. He was characterising us as a in the middle. A rich, developing country. Developing country, yes. <laughs> it was yeah, very, we, very, we, very, we have to reflect on that language even today. Very useful in international <laughs> negotiations. So we're I rich, was rich developing. Yeah. Development. So he obviously came to power in '49 with a very different vision from yes. Chifley. Can you paint a picture of how those visions were articulated in the '49 period? Well, as you remember, the Curtin Chifley governments tried to pass constitutional amendments to enable the federal government to control the economy. And set prices, set quantities, set anything that felt like essentially unfettered power. Menzies came with a completely different view, which was government was going to facilitate rather than control. Mm. And they overlapped, as I mentioned, in population, but they didn't in virtually anything else. You mentioned nationalisation, but Labor Party's nationalisation plans, which were mostly at that stage banking and aviation, it still had as its primary purpose the certain naturalisation of the commanding heights of the economy. So whereas the Menzies government or Menzies party didn't have any of that, it looked to the private sector to develop the private sector rather than the government to develop the alternative private sector. Secondly, an attitude towards foreign capital. I've got to say foreign capital was terribly politically important, was less important than people think economically, and I'll come to that later on maybe. But Tiffley had invited General Motors in, but wanted to shut the door to foreign capitalists. We were going to have domestic capital was going to be the source of financing of the development of Australia. Whereas Menzies had the view that we need to be open to foreign capital to supplement domestic savings and also to bring in technology and know-how which otherwise wouldn't be transferred. Jonathan, why do you think Chifley was so opposed to foreign capital? Was it an ideological concern or...? 
I'm no expert in, in the <laughs> Labour Party, I'm afraid. I'd have to guess which was a sort of a nativism, a nation of Australia being self-reliant. If you have this view that the most important actor in the economy is government, then the most important government is our own. And so we sort of look, can't we do this by ourselves? Why do we have to have any help? Mm. But I'm guessing I'm not an expert on the Labour Party. I mean, it's a hypothetical, but what would have happened if Chifley had stayed in power and we hadn't had that foreign capital inflow? Well, more broadly, we would have gone the way of Britain, which took a long time to recover from the Second World War, yeah. much longer than Germany or Japan. Mm-hmm. And the reason was retention of government controls. And so it would have been a much slower growth rate, much poorer wealth in the economy, and one more susceptible to foreign shocks because of less resilient economy. But the the lesson of Britain was important, that they kept on the controls as long as they possibly could. Even both sides Mm. of politics (laughs) were to blame there. And it held Britain's recovery back tremendously. When you look at the Menzies era, 49 to 66, and this incredible boom times that came, we obviously discussed the foreign capital inflows and the importance of them in that mix. What else were the, can you attribute well, the reasons for such prosperity? Well, I mean, there are just fundamental differences between the view of the Labor Party and the view of the Liberal Party. Let's take housing. The Liberal Party, especially under Menzies, wanted to have people have their own homes and so facilitated that to a substantial extent. The Labor Party didn't. The Labor Party wanted government housing, wanted people to rent from the government. Secondly, the attitude towards the transport networks. The Labor Party was still very much captured by railway unions. The railways were state-owned, and the states had this conflict. They were asked to build roads, but they were going to be competitive with the railways. The Labor Party was much more as dominated by railway considerations. The Liberal Party, much less. And so the attitude towards building of roads and facilitation of automobile and suburbia was quite different. The Labor Party wanted to plan everything and was opposed to millions of little capitalists, as they call them, <laughs> homeowners, who were thought to be conservative and therefore going to vote for the Liberals. It is amazing to look at the increase in home ownership during that era from 49% in 1949 up to 70% of Australians own their own home by 1966. And that idea that each Australian has their own castle, their own little little home, and they can be a little capitalist, that's part of the Australian identity as I know it. Of course, it's challenged these days, housing prices being so, so much greater relative to incomes, but that was... Definitely something that Menzies was very committed to. These homes material yes. are part of a proper functioning of society. And so Menzies was hoped to remove the restrictions on imports of materials. I can remember my father trying to build a house about that time and you couldn't get anything to build a house. <laughs> Sounds well, similar today. <laughs> yes, very similar. Yeah, yeah. But Menzies wanted to reduce the restrictions on imports as much as possible and therefore he went to the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development for a loan which the Labor Party seriously opposed in order to get more foreign exchange so that we have more imports. Uh, And on immigration, Jonathan, which is also part of the really important story of the 50s and 60s, 
Australia's population I think went from about four million at the end of the war through to about eight point five eight million or so by the end yes. of the Menzies era. It's doubling. It's yes. extraordinary. Australia's population was increasing more so than it's well, faster the United than, States or faster the than the world as a whole, faster yeah. than virtually any other country actually. Was there much opposition to high levels of immigration? This is a, a perennial no. debate in Australia. Are we a big Australia, a small Australia, a middle? <laughs> there wasn't much opposition to uh, the notion of a bigger Australia. Mm. Where the opposition came from the Labor Party was any time the economy turned down a bit, they wanted to close immigration off. Right. And they criticised Menzies seriously for not reducing the immigration during the very rare periods of downturns during this long boom. Uh, secondly, the Labor Party was much more attached to the white Australia than was the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party basically got rid of it. The Labor Party was opposed to lifting the restrictions on non-European immigrants and was much more in, in favour of continuation of the white Australia policy. I mean, the white Australia policy is a complicated business, but part of its origins is fear of competition from foreigners. Mm. And that fear of competition continued in the Labor Party right through the 1960s. But the importance of immigration to Australia's economic prosperity uh, well, can't be understated. But It, it wasn't we were, contested very much at all. We were in desperate need of workforce, weren't we, in order to industrialise as the Menzies government was hoping. We couldn't have done what we did without immigration. I mean, the baby boom towards the end of the Menzies era started to produce more workers than we got through immigration. But in the beginning, the additions to the workforce were mainly from immigrants. Without them, Australia could not have expanded its economy at the rate and at the prosperity level that it had. And despite this enormous influx of immigrants during that period, our unemployment rate was relatively low, wasn't it? Very low. You think these days it's, what, almost 4%? <laughs> I remember one time the unemployment statistics in South Australia were three people. Three people. Unemployed. <laughs> wonder what they were doing, <laughs> avoiding getting a job. <laughs> it was an unusually prosperous period. There was one factor I haven't mentioned is that most of the big long booms that Australia's had have been based on mineral exports or exports in general. This was a period which Australia's growth was not being driven by its export boom. In fact, I hope I get the opportunity to talk about the restrictions that we felt on the export markets. So it was an unusual because reasonably steady growth, very low unemployment, and apart from the Korean War and then right at the end, very low inflation. So it was an ideal combination. Internally driven in this economy in the sense that we weren't depending on export boom, of course we were importing labour, and doing that with a quite smooth economic record with a couple of hiccups, so I can come to low unemployment and low inflation. As I said right at the beginning, it was called the long boom. It must have been amazing conditions in which to work where a job was so easily attainable, quite clearly, given unemployment was so low. One of the remarkable things about it is it made people who lived through the Depression forget the Depression. Mm. They were asked about their experiences and they all focused, not all of them, but predominantly focused on how good the times are, not how horrible it was when they were <laughs> in the Depression. So it was an optimistic time. And what a wonderful time to think that the best years for Australia and for your life are ahead of you, not, yes. not behind you. And I feel there are some sense today that we are not living in that 
Gosh. era with Very inflation wise. so high and government debt so high and obviously energy crisis and difficulties with key trading partners were in for a rough ride. And there isn't a, such a broad view of that Australia needs to get bigger population. It's a much contested issue, Yes, which it really wasn't during the 1960s, 50s and 60s. Tell me, Jonathan, Menzies comes to power in 49 with a pretty new group of MPs around him. They were often called the 49ers. There were so many new MPs who came in then. And he didn't have an economics background. He read deeply. He was a very, very experienced politician by that stage. But do you think he had a particular economic philosophy when he came to government in 49? Or was he guided by his mandarins? Definitely the seven dwarves in the public service were quite an important influence on him. Well, if, if you mean an economic philosophy which was that the economy needed to develop through private enterprise rather than through public activity. And that's fundamental to the way in which he ruled. He intervened in a number of ways, which we can come to, maintained a lot of restrictions that later on had to be removed. But by and large, he looked to the private economy and its development to develop Australia rather than either completely top-down planning or indicative planning, which the Europeans were playing around with in Japan, subsequently allegedly developed so well under, although that's disputable. And did you see in your research much influence from the public service or was this coming from Menzies' own ideas himself? Because they were quite a significant group of individuals, weren't they? Who well, most were of Nugget them, Coombs and the like. Most, <laughs> a lot of them weren't sympathetic to his general no. view anyway. So, yeah. no, no, the views he had for a very long time. The individual was the basis of a good society, family and individuals. And that translates into economic sphere almost automatically. If you think individuals are centre of the quality of the society, then you're going to think that individual enterprise is going to be important. So I think it was much of a muchness of his general social views. One of the interesting features of that time was Menzies' commitment to not spending too much, being very financially responsible with government expenditure and bringing down inflation. And that in his successor governments, successive Liberal governments have used that mantra of getting down the government debt, getting rid of deficit in the budget. How important was that, do you think, to the prosperity of the era, that attitude? Well, there are two aspects of it. One is Menzies' government didn't compete as strongly for the resources as government elsewhere or alternative governments would have. So freed up resources and finance for the private sector. Most of the funding for the expansion of the economy was done through retained earnings, that is private savings. Those retained earnings weren't being squeezed by the government demanding more and more resources from the private sector. So it freed up the economy to develop by itself through its internally generated savings. Second aspect has to do with the debt. Now, Menzies was lucky in one sense that the great inflation with the Korean War got rid of quite a lot of the debt. Right. Even though inflation was low, it was persistent mm. and it helped a great deal. Mm. On the sort of the negative side, namely you've got the debt, what are you going to do with it? Well, hang around and it disappears. On the positive side was the government wasn't racking up bigger debt. No. It, was, it was modest. Now, the one aspect of this has to do with Social Security. Menzies 
introduced a number of social welfare measures. He was no antagonist to the notion of welfare state, but it was much less ambitious use of public expenditure than in European countries. Menzies relied on prosperous workers, job being the best form of social welfare. So we had a low ratio of public expenditure on social security, and yet a quite an even, equal society. It wasn't racked with great inequalities. Prosperity was quite broadly shared. When it came to government spending on social security, where did the Menzies government focus the dollars? Well, it was very keen on supporting families with children yeah. and for returned soldiers and the traditional old-fashioned group of people who were unable to look after themselves. So in the tradition of Australia, means testing, that is, you're not eligible if you've got reasonable chances of looking after yourself. Mm. But that focus on child endowment, which he yeah. introduced initially in, in when he was first Prime Minister and then expanded it as yeah. he came in the second time around, that reinforces that emphasis on families yeah. and being a really core unit of society. Yep. And the other aspect of it, which is slightly off the point, but still is, has to do with education because Australia had a public and a private school system and church schools and the Catholic education system basically catered to reasonably low income families. And they were paying fees in order to support their schools. And Menzies brought in state support, the government support of private schools, including church schools, which had an effect on the welfare of relatively broad, lower-income group. I, I don't think it was a social welfare measure, but it was a substitute for social welfare measures. On education, Jonathan, the Menzies government, of course, invested heavily in the university sector. And he came to that decision with a lot of thought about the importance of education in progressing Australia from taking it from a rich developing nation, no doubt, to a rich developed nation. (laughs) And one less reliant on the agriculture and the rural industries in general. So he was a very strong supporter of higher education and As you say, he had a number of high-level inquiries, especially the Murray one, from which a large number of new universities were set up and the Australian undergraduate population increased enormously. Of course, these days the numbers look pathetically small, but in those days they were large. Well, in those days we only had a very small population too. But yes, getting into a university was a very unusual, rare thing back in those days, whereas he made it much more accessible by the end of the Menzies era. Well, two things, made more universities and secondly had Commonwealth scholarships, which even I got one of them. So Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a a great privilege to speak to a Commonwealth scholar. So Menzies' era, different from how we would consider uh, the way Australia engages economically with the world today, it was an era where protection is a key feature of economy. We had high tariff barriers and that was just an accepted part of, well, the Deaconite settlement, something called. How did Menzies approach protection and do you think that was important to the way we were able to develop during the 50s and 60s? Well, he certainly didn't oppose it. Two reasons, I think. One was he recognised that the way to get extra jobs in Australia in urban areas rather than rural areas was through protectionism because that was going to protect either city jobs or at least jobs in towns. And it's a method of getting 
population, which doesn't draw heavily on the Commonwealth budget. In fact, it adds revenue to the Commonwealth. Well, indeed, I guess. So <coughs> it's, a little, yeah. it's a little miracle policy on the face of it. Mm. It brings you more population. It doesn't cost the budget a lot of money. In fact, the opposite. So in that sense, Menzies' objective increasing the size of the population, the size of the economy, there weren't any other economically viable ways of doing it. Subsidise 10 pound pongs, sure, but that's not going to do the job because once they get here, they need work and subsidisation affairs doesn't bring the work. So it was regrettable possibly, but the only viable method of force feeding the population growth. Secondly, Menzies was no great fan of big business. Mm. So he was quite keen to make sure that the tariff board was both independent and expert. Now, I think that he failed to be that, but that's what he wanted. He gave a very strong defence of the tariff board and it's a number of other institutions of conflict resolution within Australia, of which it was one. So he had no option, in my opinion, but to use protectionism as a method of increasing the population of Australia in a way which didn't cost the revenue too much. But the legacy of that, of course, was inefficient industries were, well, were propped up for was, longer than they yeah, should but, have been. But life is tough. Mm. You can't have everything that you want. Mm. If you want to have a rapidly growing population, and what we in economics call extensive growth, extending the economy, you can't also expect to have intensive growth, that is, making people much more well-off. You have trade-off between prosperity of the individuals and prosperity of the whole economy. So protectionism held back per capita income and the wealth of individual households, but meant a hell of a lot more households than you otherwise would have had. So that was a trade-off that you couldn't escape. There was no magical way of doing both at once. That is, force-feed the size of the economy and not have that at the expense of wealth. And how contested was Australia's position on tariffs and protectionism in international arena? You've talked about how the rich developing country tagline was quite a helpful piece of rhetoric for the Menzies government yeah, going, was, going to international very, meetings, very the Gantt help, meetings. Uh, very helpful. Australia was <laughs> bullfaced to be lying about these matters. <laughs> it wanted to have the benefits of open trade and low tariffs everywhere except for itself, thank you very much. And it was successful in doing that. Australia has participated in these international rounds of tariff cuts, but mostly has gone its own way. That is, the history of Australia is unilateral rather than bilateral or multilateral changes. So during this period, it would put itself in the same category as really underdeveloped countries. It didn't say it was underdeveloped, it said it was developing and therefore deserved special deals. But on the other hand, it behaved in a fashion which belied that. And was that challenged, do you observe, or did other countries just accept, well, that was... Oh, the, we, got a, we got away with it. Got Whether away it was challenged or not, we got away with it. <laughs> and do you think that was somewhat down to Menzies' skill as an international statesman, that we were able to get away with that? Or? He had a few people who were pretty good at these things too, yeah, yeah. tell him along. Mm, indeed. Now tell me, Jonathan, about the nature of the Australian economy in that era. It's changing, isn't it? We've been an agricultural economy... A lot of our exports are from agricultural production. Yes. And then we see this shift to mining. Well, the mining shift really didn't occur during Menzies' period. It was the beginning of the Menzies' period. We got rid of the restriction on the export of iron ore. The West Australian government 
negotiated deals with potential mining companies and Japanese capital to open it up. But mining really wasn't the basis of our prosperity until later. It was just starting. The big change was manufacturing. We went from quite a small share of the economy to a moderate size, one might say, European level of manufacturing. So that was the biggest change. It wasn't mining's development. It was shift from agricultural output as less important than it used to be back. Agriculture is still important in terms of exports. It took a while for that to disappear. And that was a part of the story of what happened during them. The constraint on development of Australia was the balance of trade mm. because, a couple of exceptions, we had a fixed exchange rate. And so if we were going to develop, we needed resources and we needed to pay for those resources by exports or by borrowing or by sale of Australian assets. The exports that we still relied on was rural and agricultural. This was a period of tremendous prosperity and productivity in the rural sector, very progressive. So even though prices of rural exports were going down, the capacity of Australia to produce them cheaply increased fast enough so that we kept up reasonable quantities. But there's a great deal of pessimism about what's going to happen when we really need to increase our exports. We can't keep on hoping the rural sector will keep on delivering the way it was. So there's a great deal of export pessimism that it was going to constrain Australia's growth. And this showed up in a number of schemes that people had to try to increase exports, including trying to get manufacturing exports, mostly which is hopelessly inefficient. But it also reflected in Menzies' willingness to impose strange for Liberal Party restrictions on imports. In the, for the 1950s, we didn't rely so much on tariffs at all, but on direct import controls. Millions of licenses were issued each year, people to import things from early 1950s till the 1960s. And what were the types of things that were restricted? Virtually everything. You had to have a license to import anything. So the Bureau that these just issued, as I say, millions of them in, in one year. So the development of the economy was protected manufacturing, which wasn't going to become an export industry for obvious reasons. If it needed protection against imports, it wasn't going to be effective for export. Yeah. And an agricultural economy, which is facing decreasing external prices and only keeping up to the race by becoming much more efficient and productive than it had previously. The way Australian agriculture was developing in terms of its know-how and techniques, yes. I mean, it's still a world leader in terms of the R&D. Yes. Things like myxomatosis were developed in that era, weren't they, to yes. combat the, and the rabbits C as a pest. And, and the CSIRO was quite a different organisation than it is now. It was basically focused on agricultural and rural activity. It wasn't focused on virtually anything else. And it produced tremendous amount of beneficial innovation in agriculture. Jonathan, was there a sense that Australia's economy, particularly its export-facing economy, was lacked diversity? I mean, that's something that we often contort ourselves over these days that you know, we're too much reliant on mining or too much reliant on agriculture. Our sort of key exports and key industries, you can count them on one hand, whereas you look at the United States, other developed countries, and they have very wide range of industries and exports that they can draw upon. Was there that sense back in the 50s and 60s that we were just too reliant on agriculture and it was going to condemn us to continuing to be a developing country? 
Yes, the short answer is yes. The industries which have come forward as export industries, including education, service industries weren't on the horizon for exports at the time. And that's one that one has to take into account these days, although it's suffered big blows recently. Yeah. No, the pessimism was quite strong that Australia had to export in order to pay for its imports and that was always going to be very reliant on agricultural and rural exports. As I said, mining was just starting to appear. Mining was going to be tremendously productive and tremendously wealth-producing, but it hadn't yet become. And as we can see in the mining industry or any export industry, things can go beautifully right and dreadfully wrong. Yes. So... There is broad, as I say, export pessimism. That is, we needed to export. We weren't going to be exporting uh, manufacturing because we needed to protect it. And the protection led to very inefficient manufacturing. Mm. I mean, take the automobile industry. They had so many producers when even one producer wouldn't have reached minimum effective scale. And we had four or five of them going. How are we going to export from that? So there is considerable concern, in fact, to say export pessimism. The Vernon Committee, which met in the middle of the 1960s, was terribly pessimistic about export prospects for Australia. Very pessimistic. Essentially wanted the immigration to shut down because immigration means we need more resources to build houses and factories. and We can't export enough to do it, so let's cut down immigration. But their advice was ultimately not taken. Their advice um, was ultimately not taken. <laughs> Famous speech by Mr Menzies yes, in Parliament. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yes, well, a good example of a political leader listening to the advice of experts saying, thank you very much, but I'm not taking it. And yes. look, he was proof right, I guess, in the end. Yeah, well, Vernon himself was involved in the early days of mining, but even he didn't see it was going to be as important an export industry as it became. Jonathan, I wonder if we could switch focus this final part of our discussion to Menzies and Federation. He said he was a federalist, believed in the importance of state power. But then do you think in actual fact the autonomy of the states through the late 40s, 50s, 60s degrade significantly under his watch? I think Menzies wasn't being honest. (laughs) He said it's unfortunate, but the the central power is going to continue to grow. And that gave him an excuse to let the central power grow under him. I mean, the biggest thing that happened in federalism in the area of economics is the 1942 grab of income tax, which was necessary in order to increase the tax take Commonwealth had. Menzies made no serious efforts to get rid of that. And he bemoaned the increase in central power while presiding over a gradual increase in central power himself and intervene in a number of matters which uh, normally would have been considered affairs of states. I mentioned church and private schools. I mean, education was basically a state matter, Mm. means he's intervened. Even universities, all the universities were state universities and he intervened there. So whenever he saw what he thought was necessary for the prosperity and welfare of Australians, he was going to do it, and he had the resources to do it. I think you describe him as a pragmatic, centralising federalist. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, chew over those words. But he did describe himself as a federalist and argued that the division of powers was one of the true protections of individual freedom. But it was Menzies, of course, in 59 who 
starts to bring in this concept of horizontal fiscal equalisation too, where you see states like the one we're sitting in here today, South Australia, benefit more greatly than states like Victoria and New South Wales so that each state can provide the same level of services, basically. The Grants Commission started in the 1930s when West Australia attempted to secede, but it even had its origins earlier than that when Tasmania and Western Australia both were cried poor and had special deals earlier. So Menzies sort of helped formalise this power of the Grants Commission. Grants Commission set its own standards and Menzies let set its own standards. It's the most equalising set of standards in anywhere in the world. And Menzies always held back a number of the independent organisations, the Tariff Board, the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, the CSRO, the Grants Commission, a couple of others. He relied on them to help preserve domestic peace Mm. between various warring parts of the economy and allowed them their independence. So in that sense, he could have shut down with great political cost to himself, shut down horizontal fiscal equalisation, or he could have made the Grants Commission less obsessed down to the last dollar and be more like the Canadian one or some others where you bring it up to a regional standard and rather than an equal standard. So I think his political morality or philosophy was towards decentralisation, but he was the Prime Minister of the central government, so <laughs> there was a conflict. Yes, indeed, indeed. Do you think the legacy we left on horizontal fiscal equalisation always rolls off the tongue, doesn't it, is a good one then? Well, I've published a number of things saying we should abolish it. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, it's a leading question, Jonathan. It's a leading question. Well, I'm not in favour of it on two grounds. One is it sets itself an impossible task and does it badly. I got on the only time I've been in Sydney newspapers when I was asked by the heads of Treasury some years ago, some decades ago, to review the methodology of the Grants Commission. And I said at one stage that this had been put up by a second-year undergraduate in econometrics, they would have failed. (laughs) So on one hand, I think that pretend that they're doing a good, impossible task. Secondly, I don't believe the task is a good idea. That is, to equalise requires considerable lessening of the incentives of the state governments to look after their own affairs properly. Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of competitive federalism is that each state government needs to create conditions that make it more attractive than the other states. Mm. If they just get money to basically subsidise poor decisions then and they all end up largely the same, then where's the competitive element there? Yeah, I mean, take mining. Mining has always been controversial in every state. The state government that gives approval to exploration or development of mines is going to get some blowback. If it doesn't get the benefits of its decision, if they get spread, people don't realise that until recently when West Australia had its special deal, the Grants Commission treated the royalties obtained by any state, threw them into a common pool and distributed it on an equal per capita basis. So the only benefit was temporary until that equalisation occurred. You suffer the political problems of just agreeing to a mine and get royalties and you don't get the royalties, you get your equal per capita share. State officials keep on reassuring me that it has no effect on their decisions. And I think, well, it should. (laughs) And it does. So no, I'm not in favour. I used to be one of the world's experts on fiscal equalisation. I'm no longer claimed to be that. 
Well, it's important to keep having that discussion. And we need to always reflect on, is our federation working as well as it can, especially after the last few years when we've been reminded how powerful the states are, but how reliant they are also on the Commonwealth to step in and yes. pay all the bills. And what a bill we have at the moment. Yes, yes, I agree. And I'm a very strong federalist, and I think there are two sorts of competition in a federal system is across the states, mm. and but between the states and the Commonwealth. Yes. And Menzies saw the opportunities of politically advantageous appealing to certain parts of the electorate, which otherwise would have looked to states for what they wanted. They got it from the federal government. And that's something you might regret because it leads to overlap and duplication. But it's also a message. All monopolies are bad, including monopolies of government. <laughs> probably especially in monopolies of government. Jonathan Pincus, thank you very much for your time today on Afternoon Light. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.